This week's portion is a double portion. It's called Chukat and Balak. And I'll tell you about it in a moment. But first, let's say the blessing for studying Torah. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Kitshanu B'mitzvotav, V'tzivanu La'asok B'divrei Torah. Blessed are you, source of life, our God, who makes us holy with your mitzvot, and has given us the mitzvah of studying Torah together. Amen. Amen. Okay, so this double portion. I got, um, uh, I got really jazzed about this morning when I was studying. Because what I like to do, as I've described in other classes, is I like to think about what's going on for me and in my environment at this moment. And then read the portion with that consciousness and see what, immer- what jumps out at me. You know, what about my experience or my con- or contemporary societal experience or is grabbing me about the Torah reading. So that way, I always, rather than same old, same old, something new always pops out. And that's very gratifying and, and worthwhile because, uh, semi-humorously, it's all about me, you know. <laughs> but that's what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to, it's supposed to be a, a way for me to see my experience reflected in, in the text. Oh, Gail, I, I thought you were taking a vacation. Um, so Gail's class right. is on tomorrow. Um, and, um, yeah. okay, good. We were confused, sorry. It'll be the last class for a while, but it's is on tomorrow. Oh. Same link as before. Okay, so but then you'll take a hiatus after that. Okay. For a while, yes. Okay. Good. Thank you. All right. Um. So what's going on in our in our text? Chukat, which is chapters, um, nineteen through. 21, in the very beginning of 22, um, is, a, um, is what I'm going to focus on today. On Shabbat, we're going to focus on the other portion of this week, Balak. Um, Balak, is, Balak is a self-contained, narrative, sort of humorous folktale, which has a lot of... Um, it's a great portion, and we'll be focusing on it this coming Shabbat. Chukat is also a packed portion, and it has a theme. And it's that theme that I've been thinking about um, this uh, uh, yesterday and today as I was preparing. What's happening is, if you want to take the whole narrative of the Book of Numbers and slot us in where we are, is that if you recall last week, um, there was, the week before last, was when the children of Israel learned that they were not going to enter the promised land, but were gonna wander for 40 years. This last week's portion, Korach, is a, a full out rebellion against Moses' leadership and Aaron's leadership, which is understandable, 
given that people just learned that they're going to not get to their destination and uh, what kind of, you know, and so that leader, that rebellion is quelled and Korach, the portion, ends. When Chukat opens, interestingly, and I know, you know, those familiar with the narrative know this, it's 38 years later. And it, for me, it's such good kind of, it's so novelistic. It's, it's so cinematic, you know, it's like, there's this incredible crisis, this denouement, you're all gonna die in the wilderness. There's rebellion, there's upheaval. And then it's, and then, you know, fade out. And then it, as I, I, I always imagine on the screen, 38 years later, fade in. That's where we are. So actually the, um, the, the 40 years of wandering, we don't hear about 38 of them. Uh, we hear about the initial mm, year and a half and then the last year of the wandering. So now picture that everyone is decades older and that we are entering a new, um, a new chapter. And Chukat is entirely about aging, death, and the succession of leadership. That's what the portion's about. It actually begins with a, um, an obscure, famously obscure, is that an oxymoron? A uh, famously obscure chapter about a ritual of the red heifer, the ashes of the red heifer. The, you're the, the ancient ritual was that the ashes of the red heifer mixed with other healing herbs um, and mixed in water and dashed on people essentially um, removes the um, impurity that someone would encounter if they came in contact with a dead person. So I'm not going to focus on this chapter. It's a fascinating chapter in that what is going on with this elaborate ritual? But the theme of the ritual is crystal clear. It's like, how do you deal with recovering from encountering death? That's what the ritual is supposed to do for you. It's to, it's to reintegrate you and help you re, rejoin the living after you have um, encountered a death. And uh, one of the things that, is, that it does connect with in modern, in our, our current Jewish consciousness is that the um, uh, contact with death makes you puts you in that liminal zone between life and death where you can't really rejoin everything for seven days. And the purpose of the ritual of being sprinkled with the ashes of this red heifer is to help you um, become uh, ready and uh, healed, as it were, to re-enter the precinct of the living. 
And that's similar to sitting Shiva, which is seven days long. Uh, I noticed one teacher was pointing out um, that that is also our liminal time when we don't tend to ourselves in the same way as we will once the seven day period is over and other people tend to us and we just stay in our homes and we, uh, so anyway, so the theme of that chapter, which kind of comes out of the blue in terms of uh, the interrupting the narrative actually is not um, random at all, uh, which is, you know, when I was learning Torah a long time ago, it all seemed random. What are they, it, I had no idea what the literary structure of the text was. Why are they talking about a sacrifice now and then telling this story later? But if you read them carefully, there's always a, a meaningful uh, a link. And here what we're getting is an introduction to an episode about death and going on after death. Because after the chapter on the red heifer, the very next verse says, the children of Israel arrived at the wilderness of Tzin on the first new moon and the people stayed at Kadesh. Miriam died and was buried there. So Miriam dies as the, and it's 38 years later, right? It doesn't say 38 years later, but we understand it from the story. Miriam dies, and then it says the water dried up in the well. This is why our tradition associates the well in the wilderness with Miriam. It doesn't say, it doesn't say anywhere in the Torah that Miriam had a well, or that it was Miriam's special, uh, special uh, capability that allowed water to, to follow them through the wilderness. It doesn't say that anywhere in the Torah. But Miriam's well comes from this juxtaposition. Miriam died and there was no water, right? So because there's no water, the people start to complain. They need something to drink. And uh, God says to Moses and Aaron, take your staff, and stand in front of the people and tell the rock to spew forth water. And Moses instead shouts at the people, you want water, you rebels? And he strikes the rock and the water pours out. And this is when God says, and again, in this class today, we're not gonna parse, is this fair or not that God does this? because I'm focused on the, what, the, I, what we hear. Moses now learns that he is going to die and not at soon and not enter the promised land. And the reason given is that he struck the rock instead of spoke to it. And believe me, volumes have been written about that, but I don't wanna go there today. Um, and um, so Moses learns he's gonna die. And then they reach a place called Mount Hor, H-O-R, Hor. And at Mount Hor, God says to Moses, now let Aaron 
be gathered to his kin. He is not going to enter the land that I have signed, assigned to the children of Israel. So take Aaron and his son Eliezer and bring them up on Mount Hor. Take Aaron's vestments off of him and put them on his son Eliezer. And there Aaron shall be gathered unto his ancestors. And so Moses did so. He and Aaron and Eliezer ascended Mount Hor. Aaron took his priestly vestments and put them on his, he took Aaron's priestly vestment, put them on Eliezer, his son, and Aaron breathed his last. And all the house of Israel mourned Aaron 30 days. Well, we just, so chapter 19, that's the end of chapter 20. Chapter 19, the ritual of the red heifer, how to be reintegrated into the living after encountering a dead body or a death. Chapter 20, Miriam dies, Moses learns he's going to die, and Aaron dies. It's, it's a profound chapter. And then we get to chapter 21. And um, uh, the children of Israel and Moses still leading them have been making their way up the eastern side of the Jordan. First, they tried to pass through the, um, the territory of Edom, and Edom said, you cannot pass here. So they went the long way, and they came to the, um, uh, who are the next people they encounter? Um, they battled the king of Arad. So now, they're, change, they're starting to change from a wandering people to a people with a destination. They are making their way to the Jordan River actively now. The 40 years is ending. They're going, they're going uh, towards the promised land, really. And so in chapter 21, an interesting episode, which is worth mentioning for sure, is they came to the, to the skirt of the land of Edom and the people grew restless and spoke against Moses and God and said, why did you make us leave Egypt? There is no bread and no water, and we hate this miserable manna. And again, as always happens when the people um, uh, do this, is that the divine energy just bursts out against them. And, and this time, seraf, nechashim serafim, fiery serpents, venomous snakes, not clear, come and start biting them and they start dying. And God says to Moses, make, an, uh, make a copper staff with a standard of a snake and go out among the people. And if they look at this, gaze upon this copper serpent, they will be healed of the fiery um, venom. And Moses does so, and the, um, the plague is stenched. I mention that just because many of us know the symbol of the caduceus, the, the, um, the two snakes 
That's part of the uh, medical uh, profession's healing symbol. It goes way, way back. And Asclepius, the god of healing among the Greeks, also was pictured as a serpent. I'm often imagining it's because they shed their skin um, and, you know, die and are reborn. But, you know, there's a lot of, let's just say that snakes, snakes are great for the human symbol, symbolic imagination. <laughs> okay, so another story about death and life. And then it says, and now I want to put up the text that I asked uh, Gwen to prepare. Thank you. So I've taken you right up to this part in the story. Umesham be'era, hi ha'be'er, asher amar Adonai, lemoshe, esof et ha'am ve'etna lahem mine. And from there they journeyed to Habe'er, the well. So it's not just a place called the well, it's the well, okay? We're on a symbolic landscape again. And they've come to the well and we have to imagine what this well is. Remember when Miriam died, the water dried up. So now, after these deaths, something profound is going to happen. Uh, this is the well of which yod said to Moses, gather the people and I will give them water. And then it says, then Israel sang this song. Spring up, O well, sing in chorus to it the well that was dug out by princes, that was excavated by people's nobles, with scepter, with their rods. Now from the wilderness to Matana. I'll stop there. So how it appears that the key to making the water spring up from the well is that the Israelites sing to it. Okay, uh, let's see. Let me just think for a minute. Where, where There's many ways I wanna go with this. Um, and uh, I think this is what I'm going to ask before we come back to the text. Gwen, you can take it down now and we'll look at the gallery view so we can see one another. There we go. The key in that phrase, Az Yashir Yisrael, then Israel sang this song, Az Yashir Yisrael et Hazot, is that when the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea 40 years earlier, it says, Az Yashir Moshe Uvne Yisrael et Hazot. So listen to these two phrases. This phrase is, Az Yashir Yisrael et Hazot. 
40 years earlier, it said, Az Yashir Moshe Uvnei Yisrael et Hazot. So it's the exact same phrase. The one is, then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song. And here it's, then the, there's the, then the children of Israel sang this song. They're not even referred to as children here. They're just called Yisrael. Then Israel sang this song. Spring up, O well. Sing to it. The interesting thing is that Miriam dwells in the background of this because as soon as at the end of the song, it says, as yes, uh, then Miriam went out and sang and led the women in song and dance at the Red Sea. So singing and the water splitting and Miriam are all the kind of background of all of this. But as you can hear, Moses, the children of Israel are singing without Moses. So in my reading, this, there's, a, there's a narrative thread that's very clear to me that now in the 39th year, the 40th year, Miriam dies, Aaron dies, Moses learns that he's going to die, the waters are dry, and there's only one way to keep going, which means the children of Israel have to learn how to go on without um, their original leadership, right? Let's see, Pauline said, the first time the children of Israel have done something together that isn't complaining. Hey, that's right. They finally got it together. They're beginning to transition from their connection with Moses. That's what appears to be happening. Now the rest of the story is going to be a long goodbye, a transition of leadership from um, uh, Moses to Joshua, and the end of an era, the end of an era, of a leadership era, and the beginning of another one. It's poignant for me. Um, it's profound, and it's just real. Joan, what was that? What was that drawing you were showing us? Uh, why don't you unmute yourself, uh, and then we can hear what it is. So. Okay, I, I just uh, have been working on biblical paintings, a series of them. This doesn't show the people, but it, it, it attempts to show the roiling waters and Miriam with her timbrel on the other side. Uh, it's, it's one of a series I'm developing. Oh, thank you. It's beautiful, Joan. Thanks. Thank you. I hope to show you the bigger ones at some point. So Barb said they're, tra thank you, Joan. Okay. Barb said they're transitioning from their connection with Moses. And Leah said, also the next generation, no longer those who were slaves. Right. Remember, it, it, 40 years earlier, the, the, the slaves who left Egypt learned that they were not going to enter the promised land, only their children were. Um, uh, uh, what's the, um, uh, I haven't got this completely committed to memory, uh, but the um, uh, 
Khalil Gibran about your children are not your children. Uh, they are the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. You can house their bodies, but not their thoughts, because they, their thoughts belong to the house of tomorrow, which you cannot visit, not even in your dreams. That's the poignancy here, uh, partly. Many of us are going through this now, looking at the younger generation to take over. Roni, that's exactly where my thoughts went. I, and that's what I wanted to, us all to spend, take a little time to reflect on together right now. Um, I, uh, at, uh, yesterday, I went again, I've been trying to go each time, they're meeting every other Wednesday, to a March for Black Lives in Kingston. Um, and I bring a sign that says, the Woodstock Jewish congregation stands with you against racism. So I've been doing, that's, that's um, okay, thank you. Khalil Gibran on children. Let's read the whole thing. Your children are not your children. They are the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but not from you. And though they are with you, they belong not to you. You may give them your love, but not your thoughts, for they have their own thoughts. You may house their bodies, but not their souls, for their souls dwell in the house of tomorrow, which you cannot visit, not even in your dreams. You may strive to be like them, but seek not to make them like you, for life goes not backward nor tarries with yesterday. You are the bows from which your children as living arrows are sent forth. The archer sees the mark upon the path of the infinite, and he bends you with his might, that his arrows may go swift and far. Let your bending in the archer's hand be for gladness, for even as he loves the arrow that flies, so he loves also the bow that is stable. Beautiful. Thank you, Gwen. I've read that so many times, I should just commit it to memory. Uh, Roberta Wall says, spontaneous collective singing is a source of courage and perseverance. Yes, I wanna roll, put that in the back of this, this series of thoughts. And Pauline said, I also think about the senior sages of our own community who are passing on and the ones becoming the elders having to learn how to let go. That's what I'm thinking about too. Each time I go to one of these, um, one of these rallies. Um, and Joan says, oh, you have it on your fridge. Yes, it should be, it, it's a, it should be something parents commit to memory, absolutely. Um, and it's difficult to keep in mind, yes. So there I am and I'm thinking about all the speakers intentionally, not all of them, because they had some elders speaking, but the organizers and the key speakers are all young people. They're all teens and 20s and maybe 30 something. And uh, they're singing to the well. They're drawing up the waters of life. They're doing it. And I'm watching myself. Um, I have to turn my phone off. Okay, it's just gonna ring a couple times. I always get distracted by phones, like Pavlov. 
Pavlov's dog, I mean, not Pavlov. I'm the dog. Um, yes, Leah says, personally very difficult, but easier when hearing through Torah. Yeah, that's why I, that's, that's, um, uh, that, that's what I mean. So, um, John Lewis, so I, I came of age in the civil rights movement. I was young, but it was my formative consciousness. People like John Lewis has pancreatic cancer. He's gonna die soon. Andy Young is still alive. He's in his late eighties. It's just, that's where we're at. Um, these are the people who sh shaped, and of course, Martin Luther King and uh, Jesse Jackson getting, is very old now. And the, the generation is passing. The generation is passing. And it's, even though they're my teachers, even though they're, a gen, they're, they're, my, they're old enough to be my parents, they're still my generation. That, that's, who, that's who led me. They're my Moses. They're my Moses. Um, my daughters are in their 20s now. And we're having long and uh, not difficult, challenging for me conversations because they're speaking their own vocabulary. They're demanding their own approach to combating racism in this case. That's the big topic of discussion. And I know something, you know, on the one hand, I get like, I, I, I did that 40 years ago, you know. And on the other hand, my older daughter is old enough now to say to me, Dad, and I finally heard her. When you graduated college in the late 70s, the world was filled with hopefulness, opportunity, a sense that I could pursue me, that I could pursue my passions and my dreams without hindrance. And of course, that's partly my white privilege, right? I came of age at a time where, you know, this would not have been true for me necessarily if I was, if I was dark skinned. And that's how I approached the world. I came of age at a time when we felt we could change the world. It's, now that's inspiring, but my daughters aren't looking at a world like that. They're looking at a world where they're anticipating ecological disaster, where if you look at the graphics that the New York Times and the Washington Post are printing about income inequality and uh, how that and uh, lifespan inequality and education inequality and it's it's disgraceful, horrifying. Is it a scalable mountain? How, what happens next? And this is the world that they're looking at. And I have to know that they're entering a future that I won't enter. And it's their turn to sing. And it's their turn to lead.
and what can I do to support them? Because they're going to enter horizons. What was the Khalil Gibran phrase? Um, not even in your dreams? Gwen, would you just put it up one more time? Thank you. You may house their bodies. You may give them your love, but not your thoughts, for they have their own thoughts. You may house their bodies, but not their souls, for their souls dwell in the house of tomorrow, which you cannot visit, not even in your dreams. You may strive to be like them, but seek not to make them like you, for life goes not backwards, nor tarries with yesterday. So, Khalil Gibran's counsel is to be the stable bow at this point for as long as we can. That sends the arrows on their way. Uh, let's see. Joan said, generational vocabulary varies with the difference in our timing of our formative years. But the ancient wisdom from the Torah is that it is also thousands of years that humanity has been this way. Exactly. So everything's unprecedented and the river always runs back to the ocean. Yeah, it's that paradox of watching the next generation step forward. Yeah, Joan, you're quoting just the Ecclesiastes too. That's what I just did. The new world is horrifying to me more fearful and worried than ever. How can we help them? But nothing new under the sun at the same time. Yeah. I wondered if anyone else had reflections that you wanted to share aloud or by typing, you can uh, unmute yourself and speak. Um, if you want. Our job. That's what saying is all about. Mm -hmm. uh, Ellen Foreman. Ellen, you must unmute yourself first. You must unmute yourself. How's there you that? go. I, I think in the 60s, we were very idealistic and we really didn't know the depth of the, the lives of black people um, in this country. And I think we were very idealistic and we wanted to make it a better world. And there's something that I now think about when I think about these students who are out there, they know, they know now so much more. And part of it has been because of this virus that has uncovered so much of what American reality is like, that they really see it. And I am really hopeful for really fundamental change. I'm feeling very hopeful. So, thank, thank you. Thank you. But yes, you know, there's that line in um, What a Wonderful World. I hear babies cry. I watch them grow. They'll learn much more than I'll ever know. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. And I was thinking about that line. They'll learn much more than I'll ever know. Joan? 
Um, yeah, I, I, I want to say that our next dance, and which is, it's inspiring, it's frightening, but it's also inspiring what's happening due to um, the, the, the um, Black Lives Matter movement branching out. And I'm hoping our language can move toward, you know, all lives matter type of idea that, the, that we'll find ways um, to cooperate because there's always been this dance between whites reaching toward blacks trying to help and blacks needing to do it themselves. And now I think we're at the next phase, I hope, being able to foment more bridges, foment more cultural um, cooperation mm -hmm. lines without tramping on their prerogatives and, and not without veying and othering people too much. Mm -hmm. it, it's all going to be a linguistic challenge as well as a cultural and personal challenge to find these roots. So I'm looking for us to have conversation with our traditions, um, our Torah, but you know, with each other about how to put these things, how to give legs to them. Thank you, Joan. Uh, I see that Diane raised her hand and Roberta, let me just say something and then call on you. Um, the vocabulary issue is crucial. And I think it's our job. Again, I'm speaking as someone who isn't going to enter that promised land, right? I've been on my own promised land journey, but now I'm sending them forth. And I have to learn their vocabulary. I can't be a stick in the mud. And it's all very challenging because again, I, I did that too. And uh, still, I am entering a different role at this point which is what I was reflecting on as I read the portion. So that's what I wanted to share again about what my experience was showing me. Diane and then Roberta. Diane, do you know how to unmute yourself? Okay, I got it. Um, I agree with what you've all been saying and for me, I have to remember that mistakes will be made and mistakes were made. I look at some of the things that I held forth on in the past and sometimes the very recent past that turned out to be very bad ideas. But at the time, it seemed like the right idea. And, uh, and now as we see young people proclaiming this and that, they may be wrong about some, but how do we even judge what's wrong? You know, it's when we're talking about human conduct, human <coughs> conduct and social change. I don't have an answer. These are just the things that plague me in my downtimes. Well, I understand. And I'm not gonna propose us a pat answer to that either. And Roberta. The best I can come up with is everybody gets to make their own mistakes. Well said. Well said. Well said. And if they don't have that opportunity, how are they going to passionately live their values? Right. Yeah. And they can make very passionate mistakes. And you don't know till sometime in the future that we're not going to be at. Mm hmm. Thank you. Um, um, yeah. To, Roberta and then Enid. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, two. And then Nancy. Sorry. Sorry, Roberta. Yeah. 
Thanks. Hi, everybody. Um, two, two things are coming up for me um, from the conversation and the Torah portion. Uh, one is, you know, that, that the people are now leading themselves in song. Um, how I'm connecting that to, the, to what Diane just said and, and what you read from Khalil Gibran is that um, there's a way in which the young people today are not doing what we did. They're doing something very new, very original. I mean, I was real super activist through that whole period you're talking about. Never did I look at my own white supremacy. You know, I was brought up as a Jew in Brooklyn. We didn't do that. And wow, you know, so I, I, I posted in the chat, uh, I listened last night to a conversation between uh, Cornell West and another, um, oh my gosh, I'm forgetting his name, African-American intellectual. And I'm just... I'm just listening to black thought, black thinking, black leadership over and over because we didn't do that in this way. So I really wanna lift up what the young people are doing. I, I know I have that same feeling of frustration. I'm out there and they don't wanna hear from, you know, this old lady. <laughs> and, 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 I, and I, we really, they're not doing the same thing. They're, they're doing something different that's informed by what we did. So I really want to lift that up and, and see that, you know, as it reflected in the Torah portion, right? Like there's something different going on. And then just the other related thing is, you know, reading the, these Torah portions now so much more in connection with the experience of African Americans and their relationship to the Torah, to the Bible. It's mind blowing because in the Torah, right? The former slaves are given the promised land. And yeah, they're not getting there, but their descendants are. The Egyptians are gone. <laughs> they're not even in the picture, you know, and wow, I'm just taking that in, in, in a whole new way. So thank you. Oh, thank you for all those comments. I'll recognize Enid and Nancy in just a moment. Um, Roberta, you fill out my experience, which is that on the one hand, I have this difficult letting go that I have to do. On the other hand, I'm totally game for it. I just have to accept that the, this train's gonna go on without me at some point, you know? That's a big accepting to do. Who wants to let go of that? Uh, but I'm not leaving anytime soon. You know, I'll be, a, so in the meantime, I, they, they are standing on our shoulders. Right? We did the best we could. We did it with as much integrity as we could. And now there's something else to be understood that we just, I'm getting it now. They are showing me the way, right? It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Thank you. And the Torah, because it's an, a sacred myth, embodies the struggle for liberation in every generation, no matter where you happen to be on that. And so for, for African-Americans, it's it, the, the Torah is their story, too. Uh, you know, it's so beautiful. Enid. Thank you. I'm, I'm in two, um, I'm on two uh, divergent trains of thought lately. On one hand, I mean, I was, I was 
I was an activist and I was very idealistic like in the 60s and I lived in Harlem and I always I thought that I understood that issue because I lived there for a long time and what the current um, movement has made me realize is that I'm such a fool and that I've really um, exaggerated to myself my understanding we never know what another person is thinking and I certainly didn't know what my friends were thinking even though I didn't perceive race and and thought that they didn't either which was foolish so I've 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 come to to see for myself how I've exaggerated that sense of my understanding of other people on the other hand what is very, the distressing part for me is that I've also seen, I believe, that, that my idealism and my belief that we were really gonna make things different was based on a real lack of um, comprehension of people who were always around, who really had much more power and ability to influence things than I ever understood. and, and not, I don't want to sound like um, a conspiracy theorist because they're very open and they're very clear and they just lead kind of from Roy Cohn to Donald Trump. I mean, it's not a conspiracy, but, but we never had the ability to, to make the changes I thought we did. And of course they weren't made. So those are the two things I look at. Thank you, Enid. I'm going to respond to those and then recognize Nancy. Pauline's hand is up too, good. Uh, and by the way, Blaze wrote two things, Song is Medicine, and is anyone reading or has anyone read White Fragility, which is a book that's getting a lot of, of, um, a lot of attention. But save the comment on Song is Medicine, because that's how I want to end this session, um, by the way. Um, Enid, uh, when I think about it, the things that you said, um, one is that it's always striking to me these days that growing up in the shadow of the Holocaust, we American children could have such a sunny view of human potential. It's, it's kind of staggering denial. You, 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 know, you know what I mean? And it motivated an incredible surge of, of change but at the same time, it was deeply um, partial understanding of reality, similar to our lack of understanding about the, um, the, the kind of uh, uh, marrow of racism that runs in our country's veins, uh, uh, country's bones. And um, so that's fascinating to me, that pendulum swing from horror and what we do as conscious beings to try to then say, no, 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 it's all gonna be okay. Um, anyway, thank you. I just wanted to, sh to share that. Oh, the other thing I wanted to say is, you know, one of the ways I can be the stable bow for my kids is that as they take this on passionately and express to me how ashamed they feel that they weren't aware of their white privilege. And I say, I used to, I don't, I'm not ashamed of myself anymore. It's like, it wasn't my fault. I've always done the best I can. It's like shame, shame is a, 
is a counterproductive sort of way to experience life. Uh, it makes you, it, it takes your power away from you. And so I'm thinking of ways I can hold up what I know from my kids um, without hindering them in their actions. I've just been thinking about that. Um, Nancy. Um, that, was, that was really good what you just said. Uh, I, I, um, I spent 33 years as a teacher and then as a high school, as a guidance counselor in the New York City inner city schools. And um, they were my, they were my children. That's, you know, they were my children. I, what I did with them, it's like, I know them and they knew me. I mean, I love them. Um, from like, take that bandana off, going to a handball meet when I was coaching, you know, to getting, you know, getting kids. I mean, it was, it was just, you know, the stories I could tell what they've gone through is, on, I mean, stories that nobody would ever want to even know anybody that went through those stories. Yes. You know? And um, what I realized was, you know, somebody say, was saying up here that, you know, the black people weren't wearing masks in the beginning. And now they're all wearing masks. And I just looked at her and I said, that's because black lives matter. Like they are finally understanding, they're getting in their heart that black lives matter. You know, it's, it's just, it's a very interesting thing to, to, you know, cause you know, and what I realized what I could do now is my gift is when, is to, when I see them just like, even I, even though I think I always felt like this, but it's like, you matter. Like, you know, like, and I think that's, you know, I think that's really the answer. You know, even in the simplest three words, like black lives, black lives matter. Mm -hmm. Like awake to that and, you know, you're halfway there, you know, so, yeah. Thank you, Nancy. So all those years you led those children on their journey through the wilderness. And now you get to play this role of reminding them. That's beautiful. I think, I think they're the generation a little bit above right now. So uh -huh. I, it's gonna be interesting how this is gonna work, but yes. Thank you. yes. Thank you. Pauline, and then I'll have to wrap up. Okay, so I'll make it a little fast. So first- No, that's okay, Pauline. I wanna say something about shame um, in response, Rabbi. Um, shame, shame is toxic, putrid substance. The difference, I think, one of the big differences between Judaism and Christianity, in Judaism, we talk about guilt. Guilt is different than shame. Mm -hmm. Torah teaches us that self-reflection and awareness of our behavior, the ability to recognize it, name it, have an understanding of why it was bad, decide we're not gonna do it, making amends to God or to someone else, and then beginning anew, knowing what the corrective path is all, path is all about. Judaism, the Torah lays it all out for us. Our calendar lays it out that we not only have a Yom Kippur when we need it, but according to many of our sages, Reb Zalman, 
how important it is that even our nighttime Shema becomes an opportunity. So when we look at our decisions, our behaviors, we could never know the world is in constant change. And we're always going to make mistakes, way, way until our end. And we don't wipe out what we did that was wrong, that was horrid, and put shame into our bodies. I don't, that is not the template we've been given in terms of Torah. We've been given an absolute story of Joseph tells us exactly what we do. So then now the question becomes, look, what I did all my life, you know, I worked hard, just as Rabbi did and just as almost many of you for civil rights. I worked all my life with children, children in all kinds of dire, horrid circumstance, all kinds of colors, um, and many, many more of the black and brown and not white that was not given the same privilege of early intervention early because they did not have things in place that would catch them. And part of a movement to grow early intervention to catch all the kids that needed it before age three. And I'm now living in a house, how lucky I am, with one of my children, Mary, and my grandchild, growing. And I live here, I married them as a rabbi. I'm their parent, I'm the bubby. I'm a professional who's looking at child development and watching how they're raising the child. And, and I'm sitting here and saying, oh God, give me discernment. Give me discernment to know what is my place? What do I offer? What do I hold as a yeah. container? What do, what do I lift them up with? And when there is something that I need to say, because I firmly believe that that is going to be helpful and I have found a way to say it so they can hear it. Right. This is the, a, this is the work that we all must do. Right. It's about looking at ourselves and our white privilege. I didn't ask for white privilege. I was born this way. I am not going to feel bad about it. I will feel bad if any time I've behaved in a way that is not my best self. And if I did, I make amends and say I'm sorry. So the question is, what are all of these wonderful faces I'm looking at? Most of them that have lived this life as well. So what is our job if I live for the next 10, 12, 15, 20 years should be? What is my job in life? And this is what we must process. How can we help hold this container for what is so magnificently happening in this world? Thank you. How can we be this stable bow that helps those arrows fly? And uh, that certainly relates to the class that Rabbi Ellen and Pauline are offering on Wednesdays about saging, uh, about becoming the, about stepping into this new role where we're not the primary speakers or activists 
uh, anymore, but we care just as much. And, and we, we know something. Job. And we do have a job. Yeah, because we know something. That's the thing. We know stuff. Uh, and we can, how do we discern? Pauline used that word discernment. It's a great word. How do we discern what, how we can contribute uh, the best we can contribute? That's what my mind turned to as I read the portion today. The children are now singing the song that draws up the, wa the waters of life, right? They're not just singing, they're singing to the well and the waters flow. Miriam died, Aaron died, Moses is going to die. But the children of Israel are now adults and they're singing the song that draws the water from the well. And nobody told them to sing. Nowhere in the text did anybody, Moshe or any God, tell them to sing a song. They sang. They sang, but hopefully because they watched their elders sing before them. And they reached the point where it was their turn to be the lead singers. You know, that's what I was thinking. So then speaking, so Blaze, who had to go, talked about uh, the, the power of song. And I love that it's, that's what they do. They sing together in order to draw the waters forth. This, it's just so beautiful and powerful. And then the song came to my mind, which is the times they are changing. So just like the Torah stands, and now the next generation picks up the Torah and sees their lives in it. African-Americans see their lives in it. We also have songs. I mean, Dylan wrote this in 64. But listen to the words. Here, we'll put them up, and I'm going to sing it to close the class. Sing with me for sure, but stay on mute. Could you make it a little larger? People should be able to make it larger on their own screens, but or, okay. I, can show, or I can show parts of it, but if I show the whole thing, this is... This. Show parts of it. I should have made it in one column. I'm sorry. Do show parts of it. Not everyone can make it larger. That's much better, thank you. Come gather round people wherever you roam and admit that the waters around you have grown and accepted that soon you'll be drenched to the bone. If your time to you is worth saving, then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone. For the times, they are a-changing. Come writers and critics who prophesize with your pen and keep your eyes wide, the chance won't come again. And don't speak too soon, for the wheel's still in spin. And there's no telling who that it's naming. For the loser now, will be later to win, for the times they are a-changing. 
Come, senators, congressmen, please heed the call. Don't stand in the doorway, don't block up the hall. For he that gets hurt will be he who has stalled. The battle outside is raging. It'll soon shake your windows and rattle your walls. For the times, they are a-changing. Come mothers and fathers throughout the land. And don't criticize what you can't understand. Your sons and your daughters are beyond your command. Your old road is rapidly aging. Please get out of the new one if you can't lend your hand. For the times, they are a-changing. The line that is drawn, the curse it is cast. The slow one now will later be last, as the present now will later be past. The order is rapidly faded, and the first one now will later be last, for the times they are a change. I couldn't get that song out of my head. And uh, Dylan just released a new album. So we still have good stuff to do. We still have good stuff to do. Okay, Torah, thanks a lot. I had a lot more there, but uh, this was a good place to, good place to, uh, to focus. Next Thank year, I'll teach it again. Thank you very much. Oh, you're so welcome.